Good morning and welcome to NBU. My name's Paul and I've volunteered to talk to you this morning about the book of Luke. Uh, I'd like to also add my wishes to all the mothers on Mother's Day and I hope you have a lovely day. Can you join with me in prayer? Father, I ask that we could prayerfully seek your presence today and always, that we could aggressively wrestle with your word as Christians so that we might understand your ways. And I also ask, Father, that not in my own glory, but in the glory of Christ. Amen. So, over the last four weeks, we've been working through the book of Luke. And I was given a section from Luke 13.22 to 19.27. Um, such a large selection of scripture, I've chosen just one chapter, Luke 15. And I believe Luke 15... Um, in Luke 15, Jesus redefines God. He redefines sin. And Jesus redefines salvation. Uh, the thing that always daunts me when people get up in front of the church is, who are they to be saying, this is what God's telling you to do? And I feel exactly the same way this morning. I know many of you don't know me very well, but believe me, I'm talking to myself as much to you. Um, I do find this a little bit daunting, but I'll get better. Today's parable is about two lost brothers. For hundreds of years, this parable has been known as the parable of the prodigal son. Uh, the King James Version calls it the prodigal son and the New Living Translation calls it the lost son. But hopefully by the end of it, you will see that both sons in the story were equally lost. Both sons were alienated from the father's love and both sons needed saving. To better understand the Bible, we need to know or be explain, have it explained how the original hearers or the original readers would have understood it. So hopefully this morning I can explain that. Of course, I wasn't there, so I've relied heavily on other people's studies and learning. Um, but one of the things I came away with when I was studying this was that Jesus loves to use shock and awe. He loves to shock people and say outrageous things. And that's what a lot of this story is about. The first shocking statement comes from the younger son. He asked for his share of the estate. In a culture at that time, for the younger son, for anyone to ask for their money before the father dies, it's like wishing the father were dead. Um, the estates would normally be broken up with... So there was two sons here. So the state was divided into thirds. The older son would get two thirds. The younger son would get one third. If there were three male heirs, it would be dissolved into four quarters. The older son would get two quarters and the other two sons would get one quarter each. But here we only have two sons. The younger son was rejecting the father and the life they had made for the family. The younger son was asking for the wealth, but not the father. Those listening to the parable would have expected the father to drive the son out of the estate with verbal and physical blows. 
But here we get the second shocking statement. The father actually agrees. The father agrees and he's, he liquidates a third of the third of his estate. The hearers, the hearers of this would have never heard of a Middle Eastern patriarch being insulted like this, but then actually following it through. The father was enduring the worst thing anyone can endure, rejected love. The son was rejecting him and his life. He just wanted the, good, just wanted the wealth and off he was going to go. Dividing up the estate was not like the estate was not like today, where you might have to sell some shares and maybe an investment property. One third of the estate would have been sold to give the younger son. Notice in verse twelve, are they up? I can't see. Anyway, in verse twelve, the father agrees to divide his wealth between them. The word for the wealth there can also be he divided his life between them. So the father had to divide his life. In the book of Joshua, God had given the land to the Israelites and their land was part of their identity. The Israelites belonged to their land in the same way that the Australian Aborigines belonged to their land. The Australian Aborigines do not own the land, instead the land owns them and is part of their identity. The status of the family in the parable was associated with the land and, that they owned. And the younger son took his possessions, left. He wasn't going on a holiday. He wasn't going on a gap year. He was going for good. This would have broken the father's heart. Now in verse 13, it tells us that he squandered his wealth or another version of the Bible says he scattered his wealth. So he was pretty frivolous in what he did and surprise, surprise, after a short amount of time, it was all gone. Then a famine came into the land that he'd moved into and he had to hire himself out to someone and he ended up feeding pigs. Again, this is Jesus' language to make the point. Jesus using shock and awe to make the point. Had the younger son given up his Jewish upbringing so much? that he had moved to a foreign country and then he was feeding pigs. And then we get the next surprising statement in verse 17. When he came to his senses, how many people are so lost in their sin that they're, able to, they're unable to come to their senses? How many people try to deny their sin even when everyone else can see it? Sin runs on denial, like my car runs on petrol. But God's forgiveness runs on repentance. Um, some in the world believe that repentance is a sign of weakness. Lord Byron wrote a poem called The Weak Alone Repent. And repentance doesn't come easily to many people. However, in the 16th century... Martin Luther was reading the New Testament book of Romans and he concluded that the church was wrong about a lot of its beliefs and doctrines. He wrote his 95 Thesis um, and posted it on the Wittenberg church door on the 30th of October, 1517. And that's what started the Protestant Reformation. 
The first point he started with his 95 Thesis was when our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, said repent in Matthew 4.17, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. What Luther believed was completely different to what the world believes. Repentance is bringing your sins to God and asking for forgiveness. Luther taught that repentance is not a sign of weakness but a sign of strength. Remember, we're repenting to God who has already forgiven us through Jesus. The price of our sin has already been paid in Christ. I looked up repentance in the Bible and it appears over 50 times. In Mark 1, verse 15, John the Baptist came pe preaching, uh, repent and be baptised, wash your sins away in baptism. If you want to come to a closer relationship to God, you need to repent. And how many people because of sin feel they cannot go home like the younger son? How many people cannot forgive themselves for their sin and think that God could not forgive them either? How many people use something other than God to find their forgiveness? There's a classic line in a movie called The Cat in a Hot Tin Roof where um, Paul Newman is playing an alcoholic and Elizabeth Taylor, his wife, his wife asks him, son of mine, yes, she's from the South in America, son of mine, why do you drink? But he tells you, because when I drink, I can live with myself. How many people use alcohol or drugs to forget their sins? How many others throw themselves into work or making money? And as we will see, yet others throw themselves into religious service, but don't come to God for forgiveness. They believe that if I work really hard, God will see it and forgive them. And the, young, the younger brother has a similar sort of plan. If we look now to Luke 15, verses 17 to 19, this is the younger son speaking. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home, even the hired servants have enough food to spare, and here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father. Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Please make me like one of your hired son servants. This is his plan. He would go home, ask the father if he could work for him. He knows he's not worthy of being called a son again, but if he could work, maybe he could pay, him back, pay the father back. He would live in the village and be a day worker to the estate. For all intentional purposes, this was a good plan. Um, it fits in with the acceptable norms of society. If someone has wronged others or another and gets caught, then they're expected to make restitution for what they've done. They're expected to pay it back. His plan is to make restitution for squandering the third of the estate. In his mind, he was, it was unthinkable that he could accept back, it could be accepted back into the family, or at least he could pay the money back he owed to the father. So off he goes back to the father. I can imagine him re rehearsing the lines over and over again. I have sinned against God and you. I want you to have me as a servant. I've sinned over and over, all the way home he would have been doing. By the way, I'd like you to also have a look at another curious statement in verse 18. Father, I have sinned 
against both heaven and you. So what is this talking about? Wasn't his sin just against the father? Wasn't the father's heart he broke when he left? Why does it say I've sinned against heaven first and then the father second? Because sin is always against God. Sin is a sign of where your heart lays. Sin is anything you put your put in place of God or anything you put your trust in other than God. Many years earlier, another younger brother was caught in sin and he repented. In Samuel, 2 Samuel 12, Nathan the prophet comes to David the king and tells him the story about a rich man who has stolen a lamb from a poor man. David, when he hears the story, David becomes very angry And he says, any man that does that deserves to die. Then Nathan told him, David, you are that rich man. You've stolen Bathsheba, the lamb, from from Uriah the Hittite, the poor man. David was so lost in his sin, he didn't even know about it till Nathan came to him and revealed his sin. When David came to his senses we get the immortal words of Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfiling love. Because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sins. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin. For I recognise recognise my rebellion and it haunts me day and night. Against you and you alone have I sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. You will be, you will be poured, proved right in what you say, and your judgments against me is just. For I was born a sinner, yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. Well, I think Uriah would have had a totally different slant on that because, well, he was dead. David had stuck him in the front line at the next battle, um, and he was definitely what we would normally think the, the person that David had sinned against, and also Bathsheba. David's sin wasn't the sleeping with Bathsheba and the killing. David's sin was that he, was, he thought he was king and he could do what he liked. Um, he thought, as king, I can do whatever I like. He should have been off at war, but he stayed home, where he saw Bathsheba washing on the roof and he wanted her. Then he took her, got her pregnant, and then he placed the husband, Uriah, in the front lines. Uriah was killed, and then David married Bathsheba and had the child with him. I'll let you read the rest of that story yourself in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. And here we have the younger brother. He knows also that his sin is against God firstly, and then his father. So back to the parable. Earlier I said the father was broken-hearted by the younger son leaving. How do we know? How do we know the father loved the son so much? If you have a look in verse 20. So he returned home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, the father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him and kissed him. Again, those people listening would have been totally shocked at this. Um, the, old, the father hadn't written the son off. 
He hadn't said, okay, well, he's just a sinner. That's the end of it. When he comes back, he'd better have a good story or he better try his hardest to get back in my good books. No, the father was waiting and watching the horizon, possibly from the roof of his house or maybe a small hill. And again, Jesus used in shock and awe. The father runs. You should know that in very many ways, I am so much like an ancient Near Eastern father. Ancient Near Eastern fathers didn't run, and neither do I. To see him running, so many people would have been felt unawkward, felt awkward, because they had all those robes and things. So you'd have to lift up your robe, show your legs to run. That's why boys ran and women ran. But ancient Near Eastern fathers with the big robes and the whatever else they had didn't run. When he gets to him, he throws... So when the father gets to the son, he says he threw himself on his neck and kissed him. Then the son would have been very shocked because all the way home he's thinking, I'm going to get it. I'm going to be in trouble for this. This is a big blunder, but I'm coming home. So he wasn't expecting the father to run out and jump on him and kiss him. The younger son would have organised himself a little bit, stood up and remember the speech that he'd been practising, he would have had it better than my sermon. But the father would have none of it. Father stops him halfway through. And the father orders his servants to get the best robe and put it on him. He orders them to bring a ring for him and put it on his finger and get sandals for his feet. The father would have nothing of his attempt to pay him back. The son is forgiven and restored to his position with the family instantly. This is the gospel that Jesus Christ is bringing into the world. The son is shown forgiveness and grace by the father. There's no hint of him having to earn the way back to the family. The robe was given as a robe of status to signify his office as a person of power. And the ring was a signet ring. So they had a ring with their family crest on and when you made a deal you put the ring in and like a stamp and he was given the ring. So he had the robe of power and he had the ring of authority to, to buy. It was given to him sounds like then and there on the spot. And then the father asks them to go and kill the fatted calf. You need to understand that it wasn't like you could go down to Woolworths and buy some steaks. They had a fatted calf and they killed it. It would have been a, a party for the whole village. There's so much meat in there. Um, the father went all out in this feast. He had music, he had dancing, he had meat. And this was probably something that only ever happened at weddings. So it was very unusual to have a feast like this. But the father's joy was so great that the younger brother had come home. Uh, a little while later, as I like to say, meanwhile back at the ranch, 
The older brother comes home and hears the feast. The music and the dancing, he finds out the younger brother has come home. His father has forgiven him and reinstated him to the family. The father has ordered that the fattened calf be killed so that and the older brother becomes angry and refuses to go into the celebration. So the father goes out to the older brother. And we can see that in Luke 15, 29 to 30. He replied to the older brother, All these years I have slaved for you and never refused to do a single thing you told me. And all the time you never gave me even a young goat for a feast with my friends or Coke and pizza, one of the two. Um, yet when your son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fattened calf. The older brother tells the father he's been working like a slave for him for years and that he's always done what is right. I think the older brother is asking, what have I got to do to win your approval? But in verse 31, the father says to me, my dear son or my child, the father is trying to be as tender as he can with the older brother. The father says to him, you've always been with me and everything I have is yours. So it's like, what are you talking about? It's, it's, it's all yours. You could have had it. You could have taken it. You could have had the, a feast if you'd wanted to. But I think we can see that the older brother's sin is greed. He had access to the father's wealth, but he wouldn't spend it. His God was his good deeds and his wealth. So there's a number of different people. Some of them amass an enormous wealth just to have it there. Uh, the American philanthropist Rockefeller, his famous last words were, just another million, then I'll be happy. Just one more million and then I'll be right. And it sounds like the, uh, the older brother, he wasn't getting any joy from working. He felt like he was slaving for his father. He never had any, he had an opportunity, but he never took it to spend any of the money. The older brother doesn't care that the father is happy. The older brother's, younger brother's home, he just cares about what it cost him. The older brother doesn't understand the loving, forgiving nature of the father. How different are the older brother and the younger brother? One went away and one stayed home. Neither of them understood the father's love. Both wanted the father's wealth, but neither of them wanted the father. So why do you think Jesus portrayed the older brother to be so hard and so self-righteous? Well, if we have a look back into verse 2, it says that the Pharisees and teachers of the law were complaining or muttering about whom Jesus was associating with. In answer to this muttering, Jesus gives us the parable of the lost brothers. So Jesus is redefining God. Naturally, the Father is God. Jesus is redefining our relationship with God. At that time, it was almost unheard of to call God Father. But that's what Jesus does. Jesus referred to him as father all through the gospel, except once. Jesus refined, redefined who God is and what he means when he calls God father. 
Jesus, identif Jesus identifies that our relationship to God is that, one of, that of one of father and child. Um, I'm only a newly married person, but I think this analogy fits. If my wife woke me up at three o'clock in the morning and said, go and get me a glass of water and she wasn't sick and she was well and I'd probably just tell her to go and get her own. But if we had a young child of three or four and they came in and said, Daddy, can you get me a water? You'd get up and you'd go and get the water and give it to the child because that's what the nature of the father-son or parent-child relationship is. But there's two sons. Both are alienated from the father's love. The younger brother is very, very bad. He has deserted the father, squandered the father's wealth, but he repents and comes home to the father. And the older brother is very, very good. He's out in the fields working hard. He obeys the rules, but he can't accept the father could forgive the younger brother. And he refuses to join the father in the joy of the feast. So much like those Pharisees. They'd written off the people that they called sinners, the tax collectors and prostitutes, as being unsavable. They put them in the category of sinners and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were the good people. Each one wanted the father's wealth. They used the father to get what they really wanted, status and wealth. One sin did it by being good, one by being bad. They were both lost, equally lost. The father needs to go out to both of them. So he goes out to the younger son while he's still a long way off, but he also goes out to the older brother, the righteous one, and pleads with him to come into the feast. The older brother is not in the feast because of his goodness, but in spite of his good... No, sorry, the other way around. The older, the older brother is not in the feast despite his goodness, but because of his goodness. He's using his goodness to stop him from going in and celebrating with the Father. Jesus taught us that the humble are in and the proud are out. If you've been reading the Sermon on the Mount, I think Jesus was trying to teach, that relig relig teach the religious that they were there are two ways to be lost and separated from God, two ways to be alienated from God's love. The bad son is restored to his position inside the family while the father with the father and the feast, and the good son refuses to accept the father's forgiveness and does not go into the celebration. So Jesus redefines salvation. How can we be saved? The younger son are the sinners who are coming to Jesus to hear what he's saying. The older brothers were the religious right who were condemning Jesus and accusing for associating with sinners. The older brother are the religious who believe that salvation must be earned. The younger brothers who know that they could never be able to pay back God for their sin. Both sons were alienated from the father, but the father continued to love them both. Both sons didn't know that the father loved, or how much the father loved them. Because God loves them, they can both be restored to a righteous relationship with him. And the father in the parable goes out to both sons. You're never going to find God unless God seeks you first. The younger brother has run out 
to the younger brother who runs out and kisses him. The younger brother does not repent because of the kiss. The kiss is given before the repentance. The younger son is restored and brought into the celebration and the father goes out to the older brother as well. But the older brother is angry and proud. He's too proud to accept the father's invitation because he thought the father should be following his rules. Both the bad son and the good son wanted the father's wealth, but not the father. The father went out and loved both sons. Father went out even though they were lost. Religious people obey God to get things. Christians obey God to get God. But the parable teaches us that if you've gone down the wrong road, you can always come to your senses, repent and humble yourself before God. So just in closing, what should have the elder brother have been like? Those listening to the parable would have known that it was the older brother's job to go and buy back the younger son when he saw how much the father had missed him. The older brother should have been the family redeemer when he saw how broken heart his father's was, father was. He should have said to the father, I'll go out and track him down and bring him back and return him to the family. That would have been a true elder brother. But the younger brother in the story does not have the true elder brother. So who for us is the true elder brother? Who's paid the price, the cost to reconcile us with God? Who's paid the price on the cross? Not just someone who goes to another country to buy us back, but someone who's come from heaven to earth to buy us back from the slavery to sin. Yes, Jesus is the true older brother. He paid the price on the cross. We are restored a tremendous cost of Jesus' life. It's not free, it's not simple to be saved, but Jesus paid it all on the cross. He was nailed to the cross so that we could be clothed in righteousness. And Jesus is not our example. He is our saviour. God wants to be your father and love us. No longer do we have to work for God's forgiveness. Jesus paid the price. Jesus lived the life that we should have lived, the faultless life, the sinless life. And he died the death that we should have died to pay for our sins. The gospel of Jesus tells us that the most upright and religious person needs God's forgiven just as much as the worst sinner. And I'll leave you with three verses. Are they up? No. Okay. The first verse is Isaiah 53, 5 to 6. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so that we could be whole. He was whipped so that we could be healed. All of us like sheep have strayed away. We have left God's path and followed our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sin of us all. And 1 John 1.19, But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. And 2 Corinthians 5.21 is one of my favourites. For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be sin 
be an offering for our sin so that we might be made right with God through Christ. Thank you.